All right, welcome back to Lesson 4. This is entitled Solomon's Fall from Grace. The last two lessons have been fantastic in terms of God's blessings and graces upon Israel. Like I said in the last lesson regarding the building and construction and dedication of the temple, it's really the high point and the apex, the climax of salvation history in the Old Testament. Everything is going great. There is rest in the land. That's going to be a theme we're going to come back to uh, this lesson. A lot of themes we're going to revisit in this lesson, but there's there's rest in the land and uh, Solomon is wise and he's bringing his wisdom to kings and we're going to see queens all round about him. He constructs the temple. Gentiles are involved. People worship. Great celebration uh, over the seven day feast of tabernacles. It's absolutely fantastic. But now things aren't going to look so good. So we're going to look at chapters nine through 11 to understand the fall from grace uh, with a little bit of discussion in chapter 9 here, uh, chapter 9 and 10, about still the pinnacle of his glory. All right, so uh, let's dive straight here into chapter 9, Roman numeral 1 of your notes. Where at, So ch- chapter 9 technically is, you could argue, still part of the temple narrative because chapter 8 is the long chapter on the dedication um, to of, of the temple to God. And Solomon behaves as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's blessing the people. He's praying for the people, interceding for the people, uh, offering sacrifices and all this great stuff. So chapter nine, we're going to see here some, some highlights is God responding to Solomon after everything is done and accepting all of Solomon's work and accepting his prayers and his intercessions and giving him a good warning. So chapter nine is still part of the temple narrative, but um, I wanted to end the last lesson with chapter eight with this great high point of Solomon's seven petitions. And that's a, that's a really good way to end that chapter. But I'm also going to share with you how there's this concept of God visiting Solomon in chapter nine and how that's going to come full circle at the end of this story when God visits Solomon a final time because of his sin. So there's kind of an inclusio, I guess you could say, the way that this lesson is structured. There's kind of a book in concept here. In the beginning of chapter nine, God visits Solomon and warns him. And at the end here, we're going to see in chapter 11, God visits him and, and says, basically, uh, you didn't do what I said. And so there's a book in concept of God visiting Solomon, even though chapter nine is part of the temple narrative. I think that we can have a little cool structure here going on. So let's read chapter nine, verses one through nine. And we're going to see how God visits Solomon here again and accepts his prayers, accepts his intercessions, blesses him, but also warns him. So here we go. Chapter 9, verse 1. When Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built, and I have put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne forever over Israel, as I promised David your father, saying there shall not fail you a man upon the throne of Israel. So here's the first aspect here of the warning. There's an if then, if you do what's right, if you mind your P's and Q's, if you stay on the straight and the narrow, man, it's going to go great. Everything's going to go great. And I will confirm the uh, promise I made to David, your father, uh, that your throne will last forever. Okay, fine. Verse six, there's another if then uh, scenario, but it's the flip side of the coin, right? But if you turn aside from following me in verse six, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship then, 
Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished, and they will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? And then they will say, and this is a big point in verse 9, Well, it's because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this evil upon them. All right, let's stop there at verse 9. So this is a really significant. I want to make a couple of connections here, a couple of observations for you. So God does come and bless Solomon's work, accepts his prayers, and consecrates his name to dwell amongst his people uh, forever, to be a blessing to Israel, and to be a blessing to all nations, to the Gentiles, like we discussed uh, in detail in the last lesson. But then you do have this warning. Now, this warning here is very much in line with the Deuteronomic blessings and curses. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30 broadly, there's all this discussion at the, at the end of Deuteronomy here. Uh, you can even go to chapter 27 of blessings and curses. Even in Leviticus, you have this concept. If you obey the covenant, if you just love God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and cling to him and refuse to worship other gods, it's going to go great for you. It's going to be the blessings and, and, and graces are going to abound. You're going to have blessings of the womb. The fruit of the womb will um, prosper. The fruit of the vine will prosper and so on and so forth. But if you disobey God and you don't love him, even though he's been so gracious to you and delivered your fathers out of Egypt and so on and so forth, if you cling to other gods and worship them, then it's not going to go well for you. You're breaking the covenant that you freely entered into and the curses are going to occur, the worst of which is exile. And that's exactly what God says in verse 7. I'm going to cut off Israel from the land and then this house will become a heap of ruins. Now, what's interesting about this, another connection is that this is exactly what Solomon interceded for. If you go back to the previous chapter here, we discussed this. It's one of the highlights of the seven petitions I shared with you in the last lesson. The seventh petition was Solomon behaving as a priest king in the order of Melchizedek. And he, as, as almost as a prophet, and I, well, certainly Moses says as much, this is going to happen. You're going to receive the blessings and the curses. But Solomon here, as priest, as king, and I would argue also as prophet, says, look, when this happens, when Israel is cast off and they're in exile and they find themselves in a foreign land and they pray to you, bring them back to this land. So what God says here, it's almost as if God is responding directly to that seventh petition. God is saying, look, you have a choice here. You have a choice to obey me or to disobey me. And then if you obey me, you, you will enjoy my presence. If you disobey me, you will suffer exile. And that's basically typological for heaven and hell. I mean, that's just the perfect way to understand heaven and hell. There's God, enjoying God's presence as a blessing for obedience to the covenant of Jesus Christ or the curses of eternal exile because you reject Jesus Christ. That's as simple as that. But here God is saying, yeah, if you do persist, if, 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 Israel, if Israel does persist in disobedience, then yeah, of course, you're, gonna, you're going to be exiled. And then remember how Solomon, knowing this, as well as Moses knowing this, petitions and intercedes for God to have mercy and bring them back. Okay? So uh, we're going to stop right there because we have so much to talk about here. Um, but that's essentially what's going on here. God accepting his uh, prayers and intercessions, giving him a warning. But then there is that connection there with Moses. And then there's the connection with Solomon's intercession too. Now there's a couple other things here in chapter nine that's worth pointing out. In verse 10, there's this little line here where it talks about how at the end of 20 years in which Solomon built his two houses, the Lord's house and his house, it goes on to describe other things. So it, it took 20 years for all this construction project. That's, that's a long time. 
Not as long as some projects, I think, in any average American city. It seems, <laughs> it seems like in every, any average American city, it just takes forever just like to widen the street. But in any case, I'm, I'm on a tangent there. But it took 20 years. And so how that breaks down is you got seven years for the temple, as we discussed. The temple took seven years. It was dedicated in the seventh month with a seven-day feast with seven petitions. So all those sevens mentioned. Um, but his own house, his own palace, took 13 years, and that was a red flag, as we saw. It seems to be that there's a little bit of a chink in the armor there. There's a bit of a weak link because his house takes twice as long, took um, twice as expensive to build, and maybe there is, especially as you connect it with him building a house for uh, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, the, the Egyptian princess that he had married and fell in love with, that seems to be a weak link and a, and a red flag as well. But chapter 9 gives us two other red flags and warning signs, speed bumps, whatever you want to call them. The first of which is how Solomon treated the Canaanites living in the land. If you go down to chapter 9, verse 20, it says, All the people who were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and the Termites, <laughs> who were not of the sons of Israel... Their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly, these Solomon made a forced levy of slaves, and so they are to this day. Okay? It is interesting. Anytime you see this verse, verses, they pop up here and there. You know, such and such thing is taking place to this day. It's really interesting because it gives you a little insight into the great mystery of composition of Scripture. You know, there were early writers of these stories here that then probably later on uh, there's redactors or editors or whatever. So in any case, I don't want to get into the whole authorship discussion again, but I think those little types of verses are interesting. My main point in sharing this with you is that Solomon enslaves the Canaanites instead of utterly destroying them. Now, if you, this is really, really important. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, Moses gives direct instructions that Israel is supposed to destroy all the inhabitants within the land, not those inhabitants outside the land. All right, that's a, you treat them in a different way. You don't destroy them unless, of course, they make war on you. Then, okay, that's fine. But within the land, Moses says you must utterly destroy them. All right, and that brings up the concept of harem warfare, or call, it's also called the ban. They're devoted to destruction. Go back to our, um, our Bible study on Deuteronomy, and I'll discuss all that in detail. Why did Moses command this? Why did God permit Moses to command this harem warfare? Uh, but nevertheless, one of the big reasons, uh, there's so many reasons. Go back and check out that Bible study. But uh, it's, it's to avoid the near occasion of sin. Um, that's really crucial. Israel is so darn weak and prone to sin. Um, and the, the Canaanites are so corrupt and debauched and immoral. You need to eliminate them, number one, uh, out of justice, because you got to pay the piper eventually. If you have unrepentant, debauched Canaanites, God is going to use Israel as his instrument of justice to eliminate them, but also as an act of mercy, because uh, Israel needs to remove, again, like I say, the near occasion of sin because they're going to fall into the depravities of the of the Canaanites. And so Moses says this, when you get to the story of Joshua, you begin to see some red flags at the end of Joshua that Israel is getting a little bit more complacent, a little bit more lazy, a little bit more selfish and greedy, and they're leaving many of the Canaanites alive, and they're trying to... Um, live peaceably, coexist, I suppose you could say, with these sinful peoples. And then you got the story of judges, and that's a whole horrible story of how they are living with these sinful people and falling into these cycles of sins. Well, this is kind of what you're seeing here with Solomon now. Even in Solomon's wisdom, he doesn't follow through on the Mosaic commandment to eliminate these debauched, immoral peoples. He enslaves them. 
And that's going to be a big problem because if you don't remove them, you're going to fall into their behaviors. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the rest of the story of 1st, 2nd Kings. Okay, so that's a big red flag. The second big red flag here is how he treats his own people. You see this in the next verse, verse 22. Of the sons of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. All right, well, that's good. Two thumbs up for that one, buddy. Um, but they were soldiers, his officials, commanders, and captains, and commanders, and blah, 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 okay? Now, this is exactly what Samuel warned about. Although the problem here is the forced conscription, the heavy taxes. This is what Samuel warned about back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel says, if you want a king like all the other nations, he's going to treat you like all the other nations, and he's going to take the very best of your flocks and your herds and your children, and he's going to tax you and all this kind of stuff. Now, this is a big problem because we're going to see in the next lesson with the split of the two kingdoms, Solomon ended his life basically as a tyrant. He had spent years, decades, certainly the two decades, the 20 years that we're talking about here, but probably afterwards as well. He reigned for 40 years. So, you know, I think you can confidently say over half of his reign, if not the majority of his reign, he just has this heavy hand on his own people. I pointed out in the last lesson how he had forced conscription laborers where you would work one month on and you would go home for two months. And you might say, all right, well, that's not that big of a deal. You know, you work for one month and you're off for two months. But still, that forced conscription, heavy, heavy taxes is going to be one of the uh, ingredients for the split kingdom. All right, it's going to, it's just going to have negative repercussions that we're going to see in the next lesson. Okay, so here's some of the highlights here in chapter nine of the completion of the temple. You've got some chinks in the armor. You got a warning from God. And then we're going to see what happens. Now, before we see his fall from grace, we find here in chapter 10, a little bit more discussion about his wisdom, his glory, uh, the apex of his reign, how people came, uh, specifically the Queen of Sheba and others would come to hear his wisdom and then to bless the God of Israel. This is still very, very good. So yeah, you've got some, you got some problems underneath the surface that are going to ultimately take root and um, bear disgusting, nasty fruit later on, but still this is the height of, of the kingdom. Now, what I want you to understand, and I've mentioned this before in previous lessons, in previous Bible studies as well, is that God has called Israel, not, a, not despite the nations, but to bless the nations. Israel is God's firstborn son, and as such, Israel is meant to bring God's law and wisdom to others. And that's what Solomon's wisdom was given to him to accomplish that mission of Israel. All right, so Solomon's wisdom was given to him in order to bless the nations, to bless the Gentiles, as well as to bless Israel. You know, that goes without saying here. And so I'm sharing with you in your notes three particular verses in, you know, in, the, in the history prior to him where this is coming to fulfillment. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 22, even really in Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham that his descendants will be a source of blessing to all the nations of the world. We call this worldwide blessing. All right, now ultimately this is going to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ in the church. But with Solomon, it has reached its high point in the Old Testament. Okay, so worldwide blessing is beginning to occur. All these kings and queens and foreign nationals or whatever, you know, dignitaries, they're coming to make allegiances and alliances uh, to and bring gifts to Solomon. That's worldwide blessing, right? So that is so the promise made to Abraham is beginning to be fulfilled here, even in the Old Testament. And then if you go to Genesis, or excuse me, to Exodus chapter 4:22, that's the verse that God calls Israel his firstborn son. And, and again, I kind of alluded to this just moments ago, but the firstborn son in the ancient Near Eastern world, I mean, certainly prior to the golden calf in the, in the biblical story, 
The, the firstborn son was meant to be the priest and the role model for the family. The firstborn son was meant to provide spiritual and temporal blessings to all the rest of the children and to lead them in virtuous living. That was the responsibility of the firstborn son. So if Israel is God's firstborn son, what that means by extension is that Israel is supposed to be a source of blessings, spiritual and temporal to all the rest of the Gentiles, okay? And so the proclamation, Israel, you're my firstborn son, you're supposed to be a role model to the rest of my children, the rest of the nations, that is taking place here with Solomon. I'm going to give you specific examples in a moment. But then the third example I want to share with you is with the Davidic covenant. When God, through Nathan, tells David... I'm going to make of you a great covenant. I'm going to make of you a great kingdom, a great dynasty. You'll always have a son on the throne and so on and so forth. Go check out the Bible study on 2 Samuel for more details on that. But one, the, the way in which David responds, and this is so crucial, David responds to God in prayer in 2 Samuel 7, 19, saying, Lord, you have shown me a Torah Adam. You've shown me Torah means law. Adam is humanity. That's what we get the word Adam from. You have shown me a law for humanity. What David is realizing is that it's going to be through the Davidic kingdom that God is going to bless the nations through a new law, which is the wisdom of God. Not the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law governs Israel as a nation. But the wisdom of God that comes through the Davidic kingdom is like proverbial, no pun intended there, but proverbially through the um, ministry, I guess you call it ministry or the reign of Solomon. I mean, Solomon is the wisest dude that's ever lived in the ancient world. Right? So it's through his wisdom that all the nations are going to be blessed. So it's the Davidic kingdom all right, and the Davidic covenant that's going to be the catalyst through which God blesses the people through a new law, which is going to be wisdom. So all of this is taking place with Solomon. It's absolutely dynamite. It's so beautiful to see things going well, right? So when you look at Solomon's story here, some particular examples in the narrative that we saw last time I'm going to share with you right now of Solomon actually accomplishing this great task as the, the leader and the king of Israel and a blessing to the nations, you're going to remember back in chapter 4, Verse 34, it says, well, actually, just really quick context. So remember chapter 3, Solomon asks for wisdom. He's wise enough to know he's not wise, and he's wise enough to know he needs God's blessings. So God gives him great wisdom. And then the story goes on through chapter 4 of him, three, the end of 3 and 4, of him demonstrating this wisdom. And then you got this great little crescendo in chapter 4, verse 34. It says, all men or men came from all the peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. All right, that's pretty dynamite. That's at the beginning. It then introduces the story of the temple. I'm going to share a personal theory here of the structure of uh, First Kings in just a minute. But in chapter 4, verse 34, kings from all peoples are coming to hear his wisdom. And now you've got the a conclusion to that. If you skip all the way down to chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. So you've got these, what you call bookend statements here uh, in chapter four and in chapter 10 about how everybody's coming to listen to Solomon and he is excelling in wisdom and riches above everybody in the ancient Near Eastern world. And he's dynamite and he's the king of the mountain. All right. So that's pretty, that's pretty crucial. Now here's my personal theory. This is a little parenthetical point here, but I have a personal theory here. I haven't read it. And not to say that I'm not the only one who has thought of this, um, but if you follow the story carefully, You've got chapter four being examples of Solomon's wisdom and people coming to hear him and to honor him. 
Then you have chapters five through eight. We could also include nine in there. Um, but you got this whole narrative of the temple, the construction, the dedication of the temple, God blessing the temple. Then here in chapter 10, you've got a repeat of kings and specifically Sheba, the queen of Sheba, we'll talk about in a moment, who again are coming to bless him and honor him and give him gifts. So so essentially, you've got these two book in concepts of Solomon's wisdom blessing the nations. And in the middle of that, you have the story of the temple. You follow? And I think that's very, that's very crucial because why wouldn't the author just you know, follow one point to the other. Chapter four is where you're going to talk about the queen of Sheba. And chapter four is where you're going to conclude the major point about how everyone's coming to honor him and the statements that he is the king of the mountain. He's the wisest dude around, then get into the temple, then get into his fall. I think we're proving this. The author is proving a point that the greatest act of Solomon's wisdom And the purpose for Solomon's wisdom is the blessing of Israel and the nations, and that will be accomplished through the temple. So it's the temple that is going to be the greatest means of blessing Israel and the nations because it unites humanity to God, and that will be accomplished through the Solomonic temple and through the Davidic covenant. You picking up what I'm putting down here? Okay. There's a bit of a structure going on. Again, I haven't read this before. I could be totally off, but I think that there's something to this, um, to this idea. All right, so in any case, moving on here as another example, we talked about this in the last lesson. The king of Tyre, you remember, helped Solomon build the temple and provided labor and all the cedar and all this stuff. That's that's really beautiful because it, it foreshadows the incorporation of the Gentiles into the, the temple of Christ, his own body, his own church. All right. Now, the greatest example of others worshiping God, well, I should put it this way, others honoring Solomon and listening to his wisdom and then blessing the God of Israel is to the famous story of the Queen of Sheba. It's a fantastic story of how this foreign Gentile, not just a king, but a queen to boot, comes to hear his wisdom. But if you got to read the details carefully here, she's not convinced at first. I'm going to read this whole thing for you here because it's just, I just really love it. And there's a lot of typology behind all of this as well. Okay, so here you go. Chapter 10, verse 1, the Queen of Sheba. When the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. That's very interesting. So she came kind of as a doubter, and she she wants to prove Solomon wrong. Okay, verse 2. Then she came to Jerusalem with a great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions, and there was nothing hidden from the king which he could not explain to her. So he seems to be passing all the tests with flying colors, okay? Verse 4, when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings, which he offered at the house of the Lord. See, that's really crucial there. That's worth highlighting. She's also noticing the sacrificial system taking place in the temple that he built. Then she reacts to him saying, well, actually, then she reacts. It says, there was no more spirit in her. Like she's like swooning. (laughs) She's fainting. Like she just, she's completely rendered incapacitated for, for the most part, right? She loses spirit because she realizes, holy moly, guacamole, this dude is the real deal, right? He is legit. And the sacrificial is sacrificial system in the temple is amazing, better than anything that I've ever seen. And then she says to him in verse six, the report was true, which I heard in my own land of your affairs and your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. I love that. 
I didn't believe it. I was a skeptic. And it turns out they didn't even tell me all of it. There's no way that other people's reports that came to me even scratched the surface of how truly amazing you, Solomon, truly are, right? This is dynamite, right? I got goosebumps. I'm going to share why because it has everything to do with Jesus, okay? So then she says, uh, let's see here. Happy are your wives. Happy are these your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And here's the crescendo in verse 9. Blessed be Yahweh your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave him gifts. Okay? This is this is really beautiful here. The whole reaction of the Queen of Sheba. You don't find any other detailed reactions or engagements like this between Solomon and a Gentile king. Except for maybe the King Haram of Tyre. Uh, you got some dialogue between the two of them. They're in a covenant with each other. Um, and that's all beautiful. But this is some this is pretty dynamite stuff here. So here's a little quotation for you just about she, uh, the Queen of Sheba, where Sheba is. Uh, so here you go, and it's going to f- segue nicely into our typology. So Sheba was probably, uh, and this, by the way, the footnotes, I will tell you where it's from. It's from your Catholic study Bible. Sheba was probably located at the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula in modern-day Yemen. That's debated. Consult a bunch of commentaries, and it's, it's, it's guesswork um, to try to figure out exactly where it's from, but you'll find this in this is a pretty con- strong consensus. It's in modern-day Yemen. That's pretty far away if you look at a map. All right, it goes on. Excuse me. It was a major trading empire in biblical times. The queen's historic visit, perhaps in the interest of forging trade agreement with Israel, magnifies the extent of Solomon's reputation throughout the Near Eastern world. Absolutely it does. She's traveling a long way. She's heard a lot about Solomon, and she wants to test him to prove him wrong. All right. Uh, it goes on. It also serves, and this is this is the most important part of the quote, that's why I'm sharing it with you. It also serves as a paradigm of Israel's hopes for the future. This is especially clear in Isaiah, where the prophet envisions Yahweh's glory and wisdom radiating forth from Zion while the nations stream in to offer bountiful gifts to the Davidic ruler. End quote. That last that last sentence there, I think, is is really crucial because what's going on with Solomon. And his wisdom radiating to the ancient Near Eastern world is really a type and a sign of what's going to happen in the Messianic age when God's wisdom is going to radiate through the entire world, all right, through the Davidic kingdom, okay? Now, all this points forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new Solomon. He is the new uh, son of David. He establishes his new kingdom, which is his church, the Catholic church, to bring the wisdom of God to all nations, right? So this is all about Jesus. Jesus is the new Solomon. So as you look at the story with the Queen of Sheba, it's really interesting that just as the Queen of Sheba and other kings and dignitaries uh, came to hear Solomon's wisdom and give him gifts, if you look at the life of Christ, you have the three Gentile magi. Don't forget the three wise men, the magi, they're Gentiles, and they're coming from faraway lands. After they hear the, the wisdom of God through the through the prophecy of, of numbers, you can go back to that story, but you know, they hear of God's wisdom through prophecy, they respond to that, and these three Gentiles come to bring gifts to Jesus, just like various kings and queens brought gifts to Solomon. All right, that's one connection. Also, if you go to the Gospels, you find in his public ministry, Gentiles are coming to hear the wisdom of Jesus. Jesus is someone greater than Solomon. He states this clearly in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. Someone greater, something greater than Solomon is here. And Solomon was like the wisest, smartest dude around, right? He built the temple and now Jesus is saying, I'm better than him. But that's a dynamite statement right there. That's, that's, not, that's no small potatoes. 
But then in John chapter 12, you actually have Gentiles, the Greeks, wanting to come to speak to Christ. All right. So all of these little incidences here, these typological connections, it's, it's really all about how Jesus, the new Solomon, builds his new temple, which is the church, which is the kingdom. And that wisdom goes through, his wisdom goes through all the world. It is the construction and the, and the proclamation of the church throughout, to all nations. That is the fulfillment of these stories going on here. All right. It's, it's really, really beautiful. So the Queen of Sheba, and by the way, I'd also make um, some other connections as well. Now that I'm thinking about it, it, it occurs to me, how many Gentiles have come to the church to hear the wisdom of the church, which is the wisdom of Jesus Christ, and they're skeptics, and they want to come and test the church, and they want to put hard questions to uh, the saints, right, or to the popes, or to the magisterium, and they're just, they want to prove the church wrong, and they want to prove Jesus wrong, but then when they have an open mind, what happens? They're blown away. There's no spirit within them. They swoon, and they give up, and they say, look, the half hasn't been told to me, and then they convert, and then they are, they Gentiles are brought into the kingdom of God, right? I think that's exactly what's going on, right? Don't you see it? This is the, the queen of Sheba is a sign of all the skeptics who would convert after hearing the wisdom of Jesus Christ. I just think that's absolutely beautiful. Okay. So then with that, um, we're going to stop and now look at his fall from grace. And this is really important. And I want to share with you that Solomon's fall from grace is a pattern that exists in the rest of Old Testament salvation history. Hey, this is Dr. Nick. Thank you so much for listening to this course sample. If you enjoyed it and want to listen to the entire lesson, please become a student over at scriptureandtradition.com where you can listen to this entire course, but also all the other courses that we have available in the ST audio library where you can listen to them on demand, however and whenever you want. So thank you so much. God bless you and keep studying your Bible. 